Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Hey, all you hardcore, never-given-up hunting addicts, those of you hardcore few that are still out chasing after squirrels, rabbits, uh, there might even be, you know, some waterfowlers out there still, and I know down south there's at least some deer hunting that's still going on, but the main one that people would be interested in here in Iowa would be quail. So this episode is for you. Pheasants are done, deer are done, but you can still get out there for about one more week and enjoy getting after some Bob White quail here in the great state of Iowa. And uh, that's just Iowa. There's, you know, one other 49 states with their own hunting rules and regs. So if you're in one of those states and you still got some things to chase after and you're out there grinding it out to the bitter end, a tip of the hat to you. I myself am not going to get out for any quail hunting uh, this year beyond what, you know, I was, of course, always looking for quail when I was pheasant hunting this season during the pheasant season, but I will get out for some more hunting, I anticipate, before the end of the year. I'd like to do a snowshoe rabbit hunt. I started doing that last year, thoroughly enjoyed myself, didn't see a single rabbit, but there's just something about being on snowshoes with a 12 gauge in your hands that was just all sorts of adventure. So I definitely plan to do that, and I plan to to get out and hopefully do some squirrel hunting with my good buddy Luke Fritch. Uh, last year, we did that, and we found a beautiful match set of sheds off of a mature buck who, uh, unfortunately, the buck died right before he shed, and we found his sheds right by him. But uh, you never know what you're going to find in the woods this time of year, and there's definitely reason to still be out. And that reason, one of those reasons, could be quail hunting. So I brought on a familiar voice here on the podcast, Mr. Todd Bogenschutz of the Iowa DNR. And Todd is one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. You talk to that guy and you just feel like you're talking to, uh, you know, like a a human form of Wikipedia, (laughs) something like that. Todd is just, he is on top of it. And he, he has that data just boom, readily available in his mind. He's got all kinds of great stories to go around and illustrate his points. He's got experience not just here in Iowa, but all over the United States. Um, I believe we learned in the first episode that Todd is actually from New York State. And uh, through serendipity, I guess you'd say, ended up uh, in his position as the state upland biologist here in Iowa. And uh, we are very lucky to have him. Our birds are doing great under his watchful care, and uh, I'm not just talking pheasants, uh, quail as well, as we're talking about in this episode, and uh, you know, it's just it's just really cool to see how we're able to maximize um, really what would be considered a fairly small amount of habitat here in Iowa, but yet still a, just a great state to come and hunt, and a great state to live in as a hunter. So a big thank you to Todd. Another thank you I want to get out of the way here before we roll into this episode, which, by the way, will be episode 79 here on the First Gen Hunter Podcast. 
we got a couple new uh, teammates here with First Gen Hunter. Teammates meaning business partnerships. And first of all, I want to mention my medic. So make sure you head over to my link tree, click on my link for my medic, and here's why. My medic sells emergency and survival gear. Now, their main thing is emergency care. They're selling uh, med kits that can easily be packed, you know, in your backpack for if you're going to do like a backcountry hunt or something. Uh, they sell all kinds of restocking items. So some of those things that go in a med kit obviously are a, a one-time use thing and need to be replaced. So you can easily find that gear on their website as well to replenish uh, your, your stock for that. But also uh, you can buy kits that will fit in a boat, on a bike, in your glove box, in your car. Uh, really, we should all probably have a med kit with us uh, at least reasonably close by when we're out and about and even around the house too right you just never know when the unthinkable happens and if that happens you certainly don't want to be caught unprepared and so my med kit new partner here with first gen hunter make sure you check them out and definitely uh, get that need and i'm going to say it that way that need met by them by filling up your glove box or your uh, closet in your house or wherever your backpack make sure that you always have that safety equipment right there to uh, keep yourself and those who you hold dear safe the other big news here and uh, really big news really really big news is we have a title sponsor for this show the first gen hunter podcast our good buddy Bill Thompson over at Spartan Forge has been a big fan of the show for quite some time, and uh, we got a partnership. So this podcast, from here on out, episode 79 on forward, is presented by Spartan Forge. And Spartan Forge is one of the best outdoor companies that I have seen. When you take that app out into the deer woods with you, it's crazy how accurate it is. And if you go all the way back to when we had our interview with Bill um, earlier in 2021, you will be able to hear exactly how Bill used his training in military intelligence along with an incredible amount of deer collar data. Yep, that's right. The actual information that the deer themselves have given Deer, bi deer biologists, I guess you could say, uh, information for years and years. Bill was able to get access to a whole bunch of that data, use artificial intelligence to match that data up with different weather conditions, different, uh, you know, barometric pressure, even things like uh, what's going on with the moon, and uh, all into an app that is personalized right for where you're hunting so it's not just general information on whitetail from everywhere it custom fits where you're at so make sure you give spartan forge a checkout so go to them through the link that i will provide in the show notes go over to spartan forge and get yourself signed up for an account download the app and here's the other great part about it you know how there's some really cool uh hunting mapping apps out there well, you can now count Spartan Forge amongst them. Spartan Forge also provides an incredible mapping service for whitetail hunters. So you know what that means for me as a big-time shed hunter. I'm going to be leaning very heavily on Spartan Forge during this shed season to make sure that I'm not covering 
uh, the same ground twice, <laughs> being efficient, making sure I identify all those key spots from an aerial standpoint that I want to then go check out when I got boots on the ground and really prioritize those, those best spots when I'm looking for sheds. But of course, then the other great part for the off season is you got the landowner information there as well. So if you need to get knocking on some doors, either during shed season or just during your scouting time to try and get some permission for, for hunting in the fall, Spartan Forge has you covered for that. Also has your weather conditions for, I think it's up to a 10 day forecast just an incredibly powerful app it's constantly getting better and uh bill is i mean again just go back and listen to the episode you will get an idea for bill's personality and his desire to truly have the best thing there is for whitetail hunters i can't believe more in a company than what i do in spartan forge so make sure you go over use my link get over to spartan forge and get yourself in a better spot chasing whitetails this coming fall all right people let's get rolling into it here episode 79 of the first gen hunter podcast all hail the bob white quail Hello, everyone. We are back here for another episode, and I am ecstatic that it is this episode. We're fitting in some quail hunting conversation here with, uh, to be honest with you, one of my favorite people to bring on this show um, because I get to like nerd out a little bit and ask all of my uh, biology questions to somebody who's going to have the answers for me and uh, somebody who... Uh, uh, you know, kind of gets the, the nerdy side of me a little bit, I think. So, <laughs> but, uh, we have with us, Mr. Todd Bogenschutz of the Iowa DNR again. Todd was on clear back in, in episode, I want to say episode 20, maybe if I'm remembering correctly. And, uh, it, this is going to be episode 79 when it drops. So it's been uh, 59 episodes since we've had you on, Todd, and uh, it's great to have you, and it's very timely because quail is one of the last remaining fixes a hunter here in the great state of Iowa can go and uh, pursue right now. So uh, thanks so much for coming on and getting this on the airwaves for all the fellow uh, hunting addicts that are out there. Yeah, glad to do it. Yeah, for sure. You know, you know, um, Todd, I bring up a couple of conversations that we've had in the past on, I'd say a fairly often basis being a, a science teacher, you know, makes that a little bit easier to do. And today I was actually talking about, um, how we ever first started, uh, uh, you know, corresponding and through email, which is when I spotted that, uh, jackrabbit on the road that I live on now. Uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, I suppose now. And uh, I was telling students about that in a class today. We were talking about, um, uh, I actually get to teach a class every day. It's really cool. It's called a a passion-based learning class. And the teacher gets to choose one thing that they care a whole lot about. 
that took me about two tenths of a second to think up my topic. And, uh, you get a, you know, kids to sign up. They choose what classes they want to, they want to go in. And so we've been talking about, uh, kind of the history of hunting in Iowa a little bit. And, uh, a lot of the critters that used to be running around here in Iowa in great number, not so much anymore. And, uh, the jackrabbit, of course, is among that, the, those ranks. Uh, some, sadly aren't here anymore at all maybe someday but i don't know i think we have too many uh interstates and four-lane highways to uh make any iowa dot official feel too comfortable about bringing wild bison and wild elk <laughs> back on the landscape and probably a few farmers that might might not uh enjoy the uh dietary needs of such beasts on the landscape once again so we'll have to stick with maybe getting some jackrabbits back around and certainly hanging on to those upland bird species that we get to enjoy here in iowa as well and uh the one that we're really talking about is quail tonight but uh you know it's been it's been fun uh uh telling those stories todd and uh just really uh glad to have you back on the show i will also add in there as far as the jackrabbit story goes, uh, last year when I was teaching AP biology, I um, introduced it one. Of, so in, in AP biology, you have eight units that they divide the course up into. And when I kicked off the ecology unit, I told the story of uh, jackrabbits here in Iowa, and uh, and not just here in Iowa, but uh, as as you uh, showed me through those. Uh, really excellent studies that that have been done in not so distant history. Um, jackrabbits expanded through much more of the Midwest than where they're found at all now. I mean, Iowa's kind of the the eastern front of jackrabbits now, if I remember correctly. Uh, but at one time, they were in Illinois and and down into Indiana, and uh, so I, I told that whole story. And um, my son, this is where things really kind of come full circle here. <laughs> my son loves this book series. He's a he's a he is a tractor fanatic. What hunting is to me, tractors are to my son Jonas. And uh, he loves this little kid uh, tractor book series called Tractor Mac. And uh, awesome books, really. And and uh, the author, I don't know if he intended to do this. But he perfectly captured a very real transition that happened in farming uh, in this one book where it talks about how Tractor Mac comes to the farm. You know, so this this brand new tool for the farmer in the story, a tractor, shows up, shiny red, brand new tractor, and the horse, the workhorse, gets a little nervous, <laughs> and that the fears of the workhorse at seeing this new tractor on the landscape became a very, <laughs> very real uh, problem for him. He was replaced. And uh, when that happened, the jackrabbits that were enjoying their Eastern expansion, that kind of quickly dried up. And uh, it's just such a, just such a interesting story when you, when you look at, just one species like that, that a lot of people don't even really think that much about. And, uh, it tells such a, such a, uh, I, I don't know, an intriguing 
ecological tale that really illustrates how tightly woven everything is within ecology. And uh, so I thank you very much, Todd, for all the great information. All that long that long monologue there is just a, a big thank you and a way to kind of show you how that's been useful. The students thought it was great. I read them. You know, we're talking sophomores through seniors in high school. I read them Tractor Mac. Uh, just so they could uh, see the uh, the connection there, and uh, you know it was just a it's probably one of my more favorite uh, assignments that I've I've done in my teaching career. So, all built around the reality of the jackrabbit. So, thanks, Todd. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if all my uh, my provide information if it get used that much, but I'm glad. Yeah, it <laughs> was. Use of it. Yeah, it was awesome, and uh, you know this of course is not the topic tonight. But uh, jackrabbits, are, are there any kind of updates on jackrabbits in the last couple of years in Iowa, Todd? Have, have numbers, have numbers kind of evened out where we're just hanging around at a certain distribution? Uh, or have they gone up? Have they gone down? Anything that, any trends that you've noticed here in the last couple of years? Oh, we've done a few uh, posts on Facebook that <clears throat> have gotten people to send me reports, which is helpful when they see them. Because I think, you know, where we still do have them, people see them, I won't say frequently, but they're not surprised when they see one. Like sure. Right. But, um, yeah, I could send you an updated map. They still seem to be scattered from Boone over to Black Hawk and then over into more of the historic range by Spirit Lake. You know, I had a few pictures this year. People were out on the planters or they were doing tillage in Pocahontas County or O'Brien. And, you know, while in the cab of the tractor, they snap a picture with their cell phone and send it to me. And I'm like, yep, that's a jackrabbit running in front of you. No doubt about it. Yeah. So, I mean, they're gritty, but yeah, I would say overall it's, you know, pretty low, pretty low numbers compared to we had just say even in the 1960s, you know, when they were super abundant. But that's just, you know, it's like I've shared with you that that change in agriculture. I mean, Mm -hmm. we just don't, don't have the habitat that they want anymore. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, that's that's, uh, you know, it, it, it can be kind of a sad thing, but sometimes I think we have to almost look at ecology from a scope of, you know, at one point, what we call a native species wasn't necessarily a native species. Because if you wind the clock back far enough, you start to get things like stag moose showing up and things like, uh, <laughs> things like, uh, um, I don't know, woolly mammoths and and other critters that were here in Iowa. And it's just a reminder that we're on this, this timeline that's, that really doesn't have a known ending point. And, uh, along the way things change and humans for now are the bigger, are the biggest bringer of change on that timeline. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of just the whole, the whole picture, I guess. But, uh, I hope jackrabbits stick around. I'm, I'm, I, I would love to see more jack, jackrabbits around. And I've been scheming ever since uh, I saw that one for ways that I can, uh, try and help keep jackrabbits around, maybe bring us some more back my way here. But, but, uh, fun to, fun to dream about, fun to learn about, fun to talk about, of course. But we better get on to what we're here for because I'm sure there, the majority of listeners do not share the same fascination over uh, jackrabbits <laughs> that you and I do, Todd. But, uh, you know, uh, this was another great year 
for pheasant numbers, the, uh, the uh, annual report, I guess you could say, the roadside survey was uh, pretty good, if I remember correctly. Um, let's see, we, I remember you and I talked, I want to say maybe uh, January last year, and uh, it was right after we had that horrible, uh, like, icy, slushy mix that fell down on top of like five inches of snow. And it was just this horrible crust over top of the snow. And it was not looking very good for uh, birds in Iowa last year after that weather came through and, and just made food so inaccessible and made it hard to find good thermal cover for, for birds. So at that point, I, I guess I was kind of, you know, down in the dumps a little bit, like, well, that was, you know, 2020 was a great year, you know, is the highest years, the highest count since 2007, you know, it only makes sense that we got to kind of bottom out here, but uh, we had such a dry spring this year during nesting, if I remember correctly, and then uh, maybe some crucial rains, although really a pretty dry summer and fall too, um, that just kind of everything after the winter happened, everything kind of worked in the favor of, of birds again this year. So we had a pretty good year, didn't we, Todd? Yeah, I mean, pheasants seemed to hold their own. We still had some declines, especially in the southern third of the state. And that was probably what was most unique about not last winter was that actually southern Iowa had a harder winter than northern Iowa. And that's mm. just not what we think of Iowa. We right. usually think, you know, northwest is the worst. And Burlington in the southeast is the banana belt, but that's, that's not what worked. Uh, this last year. We had that, like you said, that ice, freezing rain, sub-zero temperature event, and then seems like the beginning of February we got another one, just like it on top of that. Mm. And I had folks calling me from southeast Iowa saying grown men were walking on the snow anywhere and not breaking through. And mm. you know, when I hear numbers like that, and you think about quail, and you know half inch inch long legs and just not yeah. designed to it didn't bode well so no quail <clears throat> we're actually down 50 percent this year on wow. the outside switch wow. given the winter you know i knew we probably had a lot of mortality but you know that's iowa we're on the northern fringe of the range and you can go back to the time of settlement and <clears throat> look at some of the early reports and they talk about these you know, great year for quail. And then two years later, there's no quail. And then, you know, a couple of years later, they bounce back. And so it's just the nature of where we are in the range. I mean, we're just grim reaper winners and, you know, they're kind of a southern bird. So they're just up here on the northern fringe. And so, yeah, they <clears throat> we, uh, we were 0.7 birds a year ago. This year we're 0.38. Mm. So basically they got cut in half again. And that's not an all-time low. Our all-time low is 0.2, but we're at 0.38, so we're not. <laughs> yeah, that's still still a, still a harsh <laughs> reality. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, not a lot of reports of uh, people moving lots of quail this year. I mean, there's some quail out there. I have had a few guys talking about moving some coveys, you know, here and there. But, um, you know, that's, that's Mother Nature. It's not like our habitat changed a whole lot from – Right, from what yeah. it was a year ago, and you know, you only go got to go back to 2016 when we hit kind of our modern day high. You know, sure, we're almost uh, 
1.7 birds a route, which our long-term average going back to the 60s is only 1.3. Wow. So, I mean, that's taken in the great years. And so, you know, we had a couple mild winters there all across southern Iowa, and they just boomed. And, you know, I had guys tell me that they moved 10 coveys in a mile of road ditch. And I'm like, 10 coveys? I didn't realize that's <laughs> like 10 birds. That's 100 birds. You're telling me you moved 100 quail? And I'm I'm not going to call you a liar. I right, there. right. I'm like, that's outstanding. Yep. Yeah, that's that's pretty wild to be seeing that many quail here in Iowa. But but yeah, so so quail not so not so hot. I should have looked at the report a little bit closer. I should have actually looked at it right before I uh, came on this this show. But pheasants, I think you were saying pheasants did do okay, didn't they? As far as uh, their counts going into twenty twenty one. Yeah, I mean the southeast really got plummeted, you know, because it was tough on pheasants too. But um, in southern Iowa, had some low counts. But yeah, when you got up to central Iowa, especially northwest, north central, over by Denison, mm-hmm. I mean they've had the best pheasant counts they've had in maybe a decade now. I mean, so wow, that's great. Heard really good reports, basically north of Highway 30, essentially. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I think people got birds in southern Iowa, but um, definitely the really good numbers were were north of highway 30 sure sure yeah you know i've uh i've enjoyed a covey here on on the farm that i hunt and um i uh i saw them uh i'm going to ask you more about this specifically so i'm not going to go full into this question here but but i saw them a few times this year and it was good to see uh, like you say you're saying you know get some of those deep drifts and and uh some of that ice they're just not built for it. You know, you're, you're looking at something that's a little bit bigger than a sparrow <laughs> really, you know, and, and thinking that that's a ground nesting bird and, and it's gotta, it's gotta find food and it's gotta survive and, and not freeze. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just good to see him around. So, man, I feel pretty lucky now here in that report, the uh, 50% cut off and, and, uh, still, uh, being able to see some birds. So, well, you know, it's still, as I said at the beginning of the show, we're still going into, or we're still in quail season, going into the end of really the 2021 hunting season. Um, here we're wrapping up in 2022, of course, and uh, we're flowing into uh, a little bit past mid-January here. So we got, what, maybe uh, two weeks almost to a day, th- uh, 13 days left of quail hunting here in Iowa. And uh, let's just start right there. I saw this question on a uh, popular uh, Iowa Upland hunting page on social media recently. Somebody asked the question, uh, doesn't it seem counterintuitive that quail season is longer than pheasant season because, you know, you just don't see as many quail as what you do uh, pheasants. So can you uh, uh, talk a little bit about how that gets set and and why that season ends up lasting a little bit longer than, than pheasant season here in, in Iowa? Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of revolves around biology and also revolves around hunters. I mean, so mm-hmm. question we get a lot. And so, you know, our best pheasant populations are mainly in Northern Iowa and uh, you know, we do get tougher winters up there. And so, you know, kind of, trying to, you know, provide as much opportunity as we can for the hunter. But, you know, we still want seasons and bag limits that kind mm-hmm. of protect the resource for the following year. So, 
the other thing about pheasants is they only produce one nest a year. Mm. So keep that in mind. So they're kind of farther north or our best populations are north. And that's kind of the reproductive biology. Now you come to bobwhite quail, they're basically only found in the southern third of the state. You know, that's our our best habitat with that woody component that they need. And the other thing about, and so, you know, it tends to be our much milder winters too. Mm -hmm. I think the average winter snowfall in Osceola is like 21 inches or something. And you go up to Clear Lake and the average is 38. So there's quite wow, a, yeah. a shift, you know, from north to south in Iowa. So <clears throat> the other thing about quail is they can produce two nests in a year. And, and our research shows that up to 25% of the males in any, any given year will, will incubate a nest too, in addition to the females. So, oh, really? So there's a lot greater re-potential to bounce back with quail than we have with pheasants. And so that's really kind of the, the diaphragm of it. The other thing I'll share is, you know, of our small game hunters, nine out of 10 tell us that they hunt quail or hunt pheasants. One out of 10 tell us they hunt quail. Mm, so yep. way more hunting pressure on pheasants than quail. And so, and we also do some surveys to look at hunting pressure at the end of the season with quail and it's, you know, we get to this type of weather, these type of conditions. Yeah. <laughs> Most people stay home and watch the football <laughs> game rather That's than, right. you know, trudge four hours and hope you get a covey up. So, so yeah, it is a little bit counterintuitive, but, it, you know, it's looking at providing the opportunity, protecting the next population, knowing where each species kind of flourishes in the state and the reproductive potential. So, you know, we feel like we can provide a little more opportunity for quail given the weather that they're in, the reproductive potential, and the number of hunters that pursue them. Now, you know, if we had nine out of 10 hunters hunting quail and they were hunting them really hard and this late in the winter, we might modify that. Matter of fact, sure. the department's had a few discussions like that. But, um, you know, we just, just looking at our data that our hunters send back to us about when they hunt, when they harvest things, it's just just not a lot of effort in this last two weeks of the season where we think we're, we're impacting quail. You know, I think I looked at it one year and in the last two weeks of the season, we estimated based on what hunters told us that eight or 900 quail were probably shot statewide. Oh, wow. You know, you spread that across all them counties and that number of days. I mean, you're talking fractions of a bird being, I mean, it's yeah. just not. Yeah. Yeah. Very low, very low harvest. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense, and I think there's a bigger truth within that that just applies to uh, uh, the way that we look at scientific decisions and data. You know, a lot of times we look at things so anecdotally, you know, what have I seen happen right here on my farm? And and uh, we have to, you know, kind of, kind of getting a little preacher here, I suppose, but we have to keep in mind that Iowa is a huge state. And not just Iowa, you know, you live in another state where there's whatever season you're you're wondering about. It's so much bigger than just where you're hunting and just what you're seeing. And so uh, really taking that full state view, what you know, what what's going on all throughout the state. Uh, and then also, like you said, the the hunter side of that, which I think is awesome that that the the department weighs that into uh, their, their decision-making, you know, what, what gives hunters the best opportunities with, the, you know, what's reasonable 
for the for the quail or for the deer or for the pheasants or or uh, mallards or whatever you know what what how does that all fit into the picture so i think that's a that's a great answer and and uh one that if you're listening in now you know and you know what go be that one out of 10 guy who goes out and tries to hunt some quail in these last two weeks <laughs> But so quail be in the minority, but uh, you have to all to yourself. <laughs> that's right. That's right. For sure. So, you know, here's another thing too, and that plays right into that, the one out of 10 thing. And when you look at not just here in Iowa, but th- throughout, I guess you'd say the hunting circle all in the modern age, quail just don't seem to get the laud the excitement the you know the the following that pheasants do they're just not as charismatic for some reason and um you know i i'm a i'm a guy who uh yes i love science but i also love history and to me when i think about it you know a quail is almost more special to me when i when i'm able to bag a quail because it belongs here you know we're <laughs> it's from iowa it's not from uh i'm trying to remember here ringneck quail or ringneck pheasants are from uh east asia aren't they if i remember correctly yep southeast asia yeah so so uh you know it's the, the quail belong here but hunters just don't get too excited even in places where there are more quail it seems you know from from my perspective any ideas why you think that is is it just because they're smaller is it because they're harder to hunt what do you think yeah i think you know for iowa i think it's probably because we do have the other game bird like the pheasant um you know i have the luxury of going to national meetings and and especially on quail and so, you know, the southeast United States, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Virginia, South Carolina, you know, quail are king down there because that's the only upland bird that's native down there. I mean, they have morning doves like we do, and sure. so they really do chase them. But quail are the king game bird down there, so you hear a lot more focus down there. But when you come up here, you know, I don't. I think, you know, quail are, you know, their their numbers are lower. They're not as widely distributed. Um, you know, you really need about four quail to have a meal and one pheasant will be, you know, it's just that kind of whole, whole dynamic, you know, they cackle, they're loud, noisy. And, and, uh, you know, so I just think, I don't know, humans seem to be drawn to the, you know, the more, I don't know if you call it glamorous species, whatever it is, but you know, whether it's deer with big antlers or, you know, big gobbler or that nice Drakewood duck or. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And it is good to hear that the South still is enjoying that. And I've definitely seen that represented in, um, older artwork, you know, I'm a sucker for you, like going to an antique shop and you see like a old painting of like a couple of, couple of pointers on, you know, in a Covey rise or something like that. And, and, uh, I remember even before I was hunting, uh, noticing that that uh, down south, reading it about it in outdoor life or field and stream or something about southern quail hunting. So it's good to see that that tradition is still is still alive and well. How, I guess this was going to be a question that I had later, but how have quail numbers fared down in the south? Are they still? You know, I, I had a guy talk about quail hunting about a year ago, and um, he talked about how I think it was in North Carolina 
uh, he has seen coil numbers change uh, there. It's either North or South Carolina. He's he lives right on the border. He ends up hunting both states, but but um, he's seen those numbers decline. Have you noticed that when you when you do have those interactions with folks from other parts of the country, or does does quail seem to be pretty well stable with what it's been for the last fifty years? No, they've seen big time declines down there in the southeast too and most of the states um <clears throat> have I mean, there's a national quail plan and you know to to address the the situation they've seen down there the thing in the southeast is it's it's pine country down there so and it's kind of a savanna type sure also historically down there they used to hay the timber if you can imagine that you know, how do you hay a timber? That's crazy. Well, that's timber that's so open that, uh, you know, and so much light getting to the ground that there's more grass than there is trees. And so that's historically what whale hunting was like down there. And there was a lot of natural fire that kept it that way. And the Indians kept it that way. Of course, with human settlement, there was a lot of that kind of going on, grazing, scraping a living out of the salt of the earth type thing. Most of the soils down there are red or sand, not mm. not like a good black stuff up yep. here. And so yep. a lot of it's gone to pine plantations. And so they grow it for timber. I mean, that's a lot of where yeah. our pine lumber comes from is the southeast. Well, you can't plant it that heavy in, and uh have quail make it i mean it just basically it, it's such heavy pine that they rake the pine straw underneath and sell it and there's nothing growing on the ground mm. well that doesn't work well mm. for quail and then a lot of their odd areas that used to be pasture you know livestock's been consolidated same thing we see up here and those fields have just grown up to hardwoods and pines and so what they're struggling with down there is getting landowners to open up your woods, you know, yeah. cut down half your trees and put a fire through it, you know, and everybody's like, what are you talking about, a forest fire? Yeah, right, right, yeah. No, that that uh, that uh, that makes sense when you tell the whole story once again, you know, just uh, historically what, what's been going on. And, and again, so often it comes back to habitat. And uh, at one time that wasn't really the problem that was – causing the most damage i don't think at least you know reading historical accounts more of the market hunting and so forth maybe not so much for quail but but uh certainly for big game species but so much today in the the 20th and 20, now 21st century just the rapid expansion of societies and communities you know just uh we've we've uh we've been growing and using more and more and more and there's a cost for that and unfortunately it, that cost oftentimes is not a good one for for wildlife so yeah good good uh good to know how things are going in in other parts of of the country as far as quail go but we you mentioned it before we're at the historical kind of northern edge of quail country as far as winding the clock back to their native range here here in Iowa and that being the very southern edge in fact i think uh isn't it in the roadside survey don't don't uh you guys publish a map that shows their their normal distribution for for uh 
Bob White quail in Iowa, and it's it, I think it I think that's where I've seen the map, and it just shows that very bottom edge of the state, the the most southern counties really um, having the greatest distribution by far for uh, for quail. But last time I had you on, you told this really intriguing story about kind of almost like the jackrabbit, how farming practice for a short time uh, really had an unintentional great consequence for quail and their uh, distribution in North America. And uh, that was kind of centered around uh, hedgerows, right? Yeah. I mean, if you go back and read the notes on settlement, you know, at settlement, quail were not that common or abundant in Iowa. We had them, but you got to remember it was Indian scent and fire, bison and elk. And so you had this kind of transition between the forest and the prairie. Whenever the fires got hot, they'd burn in the forest, set it mm. back. And then, of course, it'd grow out again. And so, it, and that's what quail really like is that disturbance between those two systems. And so sure. you bring white man on with horses and plows. And here all of a sudden they put these highly nutritious corn and oat seeds on the ground, little tiny fields kind of checked the fires, started doing hedgerows, Osage orange. They couldn't afford fence back then and stuff. So they used hedge to keep their cattle in areas. And, Mm -hmm. you know, quail just exploded by the late 1880s into the 1890s, 1870s. I mean, you read stories in Southern Iowa that they were so abundant that in the summer, early fall, the settlers would go out and set these leads out And then make a box trap at the end and just go walk through the cover. And there were so many quail, they just drive them right in there into these boxes and then ship them off to market. Wow. So, you know, you think about that, it's like, how many quail were there on the landscape? You could just. (laughs) Yeah, that that is nuts. So, so really, quail did face some some market uh, hunting at at one time, too, it sounds like. But that kind of carries me into my next question there. So, I, I imagine it went along with that same scenario was quail hunting something that settlers did we know that they hunted a lot of prairie chickens but uh were were quail something that was pursued as well pretty regularly oh, yeah. actually they're one of the first species we had limits on in the 1890s you know as we started getting more efficient and and you know eventually tractors came on the scene not too long after that and mm-hmm. you know we started getting more efficient but yeah, I mean, people were seeing the decline of the quail as early as the 1890s. And, uh, you know, one of the first bag limits we saw, and they had declined so much. I'm trying to remember the year, but I want to say it was 1916. The Iowa legislature closed the season altogether. Oh, I mean, it wow. used to be you could hunt quail. They were so abundant. There was You hunted them year-round. Wow. Any time of the year. You know, and then things started going down. So then they put a bag limit of 25 a day. And then, then they started going, well, you can't bother them during the nesting season. And and then, of course, <clears throat> you know, they eventually closed the season. And actually, the season stayed closed for, I want to say, 20-something years, maybe. Maybe not quite. I think till about 1933 before it was opened sure. again, if I remember my dates and you know which is kind of kind of silly back then i mean obviously the market hunting and hunting while they were nesting wasn't good and but the habitat was so abundant at that time they probably could withstand even that egregious over harvest 
Um, but, you know, as we got more efficient with our farming and of course we started developing barbed wire fence and we didn't need hedgerows and mm-hmm. fields started getting bigger and farming got more efficient. Of course, we lost a lot of habitat. So the numbers started tumbling and, uh, yeah. And I mean, as you said, with your son and your tractor book, <laughs> we just <laughs> continue to get more efficient and the landscape change. And so quail are kind of following the, the habitat trend that we have out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if, as we, I think as a society, we're becoming more conservation mindful. Maybe it'd be a good way to say it. Um, I, we definitely have a lot of progress to, ma- <laughs> to make, but um, it'll be interesting to see if hedgerows end up fitting back into that plan somehow. Um, you know, I have a, I have a friend who uh, he, uh, he's also a teacher, he's a math teacher and uh, he, uh, he, he, he nerds out on this stuff too. He let, he let, I'll, I'll be sure to tell him about this, uh, this interview. He, he loved listening to the last one that, that we did. And he was actually the one who, uh, asked the question about cover crops. If you remember, remember that discussion, if, if co- cover crops end up being effective for, for small game and upland bird species, but, but, um, he's been planting, uh, some hedge trees on his farm and uh, he would love to see uh, some use of, of hedgerows again. But, you know, a, another thought that kind of comes into my mind with that is sometimes trees and quail are a little bit different because uh, if I remember from our last conversation, they really need that woody cover. But um, birds of prey, uh, those have been those have been doing pretty well despite uh, some of the declines in other, other uh, bird species that we've seen in recent years, birds of prey have really been a good comeback story from a conservation standpoint. And, uh, they, they like to hunt quail and, and pheasants too. And, uh, do you think sometimes though, you know, if we were to bring hedgerows back, would that, would that almost be a bad thing for pheasants and quail just because we have such a, you know, relatively speaking a pretty healthy population now of bald eagles and and hawks and and uh you know some of the others do they do they when there is you know we'll say crp grass in close proximity to those trees do those birds of prey take advantage of that perch in those trees and then you know just basically have that that view of any kind of activity going down on the ground below them is that pretty hard on on quail and pheasants Okay, all you fellow first-gen hunters, veteran hunters, and anyone else with a great big fat hunting dream that you have not yet tapped into, I'm talking directly to you right now. And this is a personal testimony. You're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. And that is because I am a customer of good old Alex Gruen over at East to West Hunts. And I'm going to tell you right now, there is not a better hunt planning service in the business here is how thorough alex is i'm just going to give you that that first person testimonial that hopefully will help seal the deal for you after i get done recording this ad i'm going to use a promo code that alex 
sent to me via text message to save me big bucks on a really nice hunting pack that I've had my eye on for months now. And uh, he just kind of came up with this promo code just yesterday, got it in the mail or something. He said, you know what, I'm going to save this for you. I know you got your eye on this pack. He sent it to me. Alex has sent me workout tips. Alex has been there around the clock from all my inquiries on different pieces of gear, from sleeping bags to tents to rifle scopes, and he's got connections all over the place, so he he knows where to send you to get you the right stuff to not only make it so that you can get out on the hunt, but you can be comfortable, get a good night's sleep, and hunt effectively each and every day of your trip truly maximizing the dollars spent to get there and i think that's probably the biggest value in all of this alex has so much experience hunting all over north america that when he sends you somewhere you're not going there blind no he's going to send you to specific places within these units that he either through his vast network with guides and outfitters or from his own personal experience his own waypoints that he's saved on his hunting maps that he'll share with you so that you have the best chance at being successful. So head over to www.alexgruen.com and do your hunt planning with Alex through East to West Hunts. Be sure though, when you go through and you start checking out all the options, I should say he's got multiple options there depending on what your the right price point is for you. Be sure you enter the first gen hunter podcast listener code first gen 10 at checkout when you enter that in you'll get 10 percent off of any service you purchase through alex again that's www.alexgruen.com use the promo code first gen the number 10 at checkout save yourself 10 percent and get going on that hunt that you've been putting on the back burner for all these years you know when we're working with the private landowners, that's one of the things we always try to stress is you want to look at that shrubby component, you know, a lot of branches down by ground level. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's why we're always talking about raspberry thickets and, and, um, you know, I suppose that is true with hedge trees. They kind of grow down like that towards the ground. And yeah. Down. The Osage orange hedge, you know, those classic trees that we used to use, especially when they were young and then people would cut them for fence posts when they got about that big, of course they'd sucker back and make that awesome, you know, good overhead cover and yet open at ground level. And that's really what Bob White quail are looking. Sure. Um, you know, if you've got a lot of tall trees that are out raptors to perch in your quail areas, then you know, that tells me there's probably some timber harvest that needs to go on or you need to move your quail focus areas to areas that, um, uh, you know, maybe don't have that component. But that being said, quail are pretty resourceful if they've got good habitat. You know, I was mentioning the southeast and, you know, it's a pine savanna down there. So if I showed you a picture of that, you know, you'd be looking at this, imagine CRP field, like 80 acres, and then put about Oh, I don't know, 40 trees in it scattered all over. Sure. There's a tree, a tree there. Single stem, you know, the way pines grow, nothing yep. down at the ground, way up high. And yet quail thrive down there when they manage that grassland cover. And there's raptor perches everywhere. So Yeah, that's true. You know, if you're doing the right things on the ground, though. Now, granted, they don't have the winter down there like we have. So, you know, wintertime is much easier for them. But, 
you put the right habitat down there. You know, it's funny when I go down there and look at their habitat and I'm like, man, it seems like there's rafter perches everywhere. And he's like, <laughs> now, if you manage this cover right, you know, and all our hawks, a lot of them go down there to winter. You sure. know, so that's when they see their highest raptor population. And um, <clears throat> it's amazing, you know, on, on the better. So, you know, that's the plantation mindset down there. It's always been some rich people, some large land ownerships there. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think the one plantation I went to and toured was like the Heinz Ketchup Company, you know, that big conglomerate. <laughs> and, you wow. know, so they don't, I mean, they do some farming there. They do some timber harvest, but let's face it, this is a place where they can bring their clients and have a good quail hunt with them. Yep. You know, so they have these quail managers on the property and they have like a $300,000 a year budget to manage quail. Wow. And so, you know, we, they know enough about the science down there and what they want. I mean, they get to a bird an acre wow. down there when they do their counts. I mean, so you're talking a covey every 10 acres. Yeah, that's crazy. It's just mind-boggling to me because you come back up here to our heydays like in the 60s and stuff we thought when we got to a cubby for 40 mm. i mean that's pretty good i mean that's four cubbies on a quarter section you know 16 cubbies in a square mile i mean that's you know pretty good quail densities by yeah you know, standards up here and and they're getting a quail breaker down there so right cool. oh, and, <laughs> so when people ask me about the predators and that kind of stuff i'm like look at the densities they can have when you do it all right you know of course they're spending huge tons of money on not huge acreages but i mean just just what you can achieve so <clears throat> so yeah i mean you know up here you know we're working with managers that's we're trying to definitely encourage them you know keep keep that shrubby component because it's super important in the winter time and you need to have that good energy winter food source right nearby because quail just don't move that far, especially when we get bad snows. And, you know, so having all your components pretty close together, you know, if you think about a covey for 40 acres, you need a lot of different habitat types pretty close together. If you want that covey to be able to use all 40 acres, I mean, you need, sure. you need food here, you need shrubby cover here, you need it over here, you need it over here, you know? Yep. Yep. Well, that, that it's makes a pretty, sense. Pretty busy landscape if you want to max out your quail. Right. Well, and I mean, that's, that's pretty well true for a lot of species. Diversity just is, uh, it's generally, better of course there's some anomalies to that where you know almost like the hedgerows where you know you just put a bunch of hedgerows on the landscape and it has a booming effect for <laughs> for a species or having a lot of oats on the landscape all of a sudden helping jackrabbits explode in their population but but yeah so so uh yeah pretty pretty good rule of thumb there and and good to know about uh if somebody had that concern you know it's it, it you know, I think what we can do too is from a hunter standpoint, which isn't necessarily helpful or healthy for the big picture is we start to look at those species like those raptor species and almost like uh, get some disdain for them because there are competition, but it's good to see them back too. And, uh, you know, things got pretty dire there for, for a while for, you know, our nation's bird, <laughs> bald eagle. And it's, I remember, uh, my, I think it was the first time I, I got out bow hunting this 
past season, I had a bald eagle fly over me so close that I could hear the wind on his wings. And that was just a, you know, pretty cool thing that someone hasn't gotten to enjoy there for quite some time. So it's, uh, it's good to see the full picture though. And it's good to know that, you know, you can, you can enjoy both by putting in the, the work and, and working smarter and not harder some in some cases for your quail and give them that cover on, on the ground that they need. So, yeah, that's, that's great to hear. Well, the, the other thing that I've, that I've kind of had in, in the back of my mind, not just in this conversation, but even before, it just seems to me that quail are kind of fragile. You know, they're, they're, they're easily, their their apple cart is easily upset <laughs> when things aren't just right for them. Is that an accurate perception, or are they just as are they just as adapt you know well at adapting as a white-tailed deer is, or as a coyote is, you know, or a raccoon, you know, some some of those critters that we look as like the most adaptive organisms on the planet. But are are quail fragile, Todd? Well, I mean, we are on the northern fringe of the range, so I guess from the perspective of the weather we see, it's definitely a more challenging landscape. I don't know as I'd say that they're fragile per se. Um, you know, I once had a biologist from Missouri describe quail as they're great at reproducing, but they suck at living. <laughs> I mean, so, but that, I mean, that's the kind of critter they are. They're almost like a sunfish in the in the bird world. I mean, you know, sunfish spew out a ton of eggs and, you know, well, yep. I hope a couple of them make it, you know, yep. that, and that's kind of the same mentality that, you know, that the quail follow. I mean, they can, a hen can produce several nests a year. She can start a nest and leave it to the male. And so they're, you know, they just basically, that's their philosophy. They, you know, pump out a lot of young and, you know, I think, you know, evolution wise, they know they don't live real well, but, you know, if enough of them are out there, then some will always make it and, you know, population continues and so when mother nature smiles on them you know or habitat smiles on them you know the great thing about them is they pioneer to new habitat you know overnight you know if there's new habitat out there they take advantage of it quickly they can reproduce quickly and you know some of our other species that doesn't happen so quickly but uh sure but it's boom or bust you know you take it away and they go away really quickly too so Mm -hmm. yep Good old uh, R strategist, right? Yeah, uh, the, the quail there. Yeah, that's that's a uh, that's that's a good way to put it. Uh, they they uh, adjust in that way. They're they're more, uh, I guess you'd say, reproductively savvy than our quail or than our pheasants or or uh, some of those other critters even that I mentioned. Um, just uh, do a good job hanging around, but in that, in that method of just trying to have a lot around. So with that, with that in mind, then does a covey, you know, whenever I, whenever I take a shot on a covey, I always feel kind of guilty because, you know, they, they seem so communal, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like a a whole neighborhood of a quail (laughs) that I just, uh, you know, maybe shot one or two of them, uh, that what do they replace those one or two quail pretty, pretty, uh, quickly in the following year or uh you know if you hunted uh let's say you hunted a covey of 10 to 15 birds uh pretty hot you know took maybe you you got five shot opportunities on that same covey and took out you know uh seven 
of those 15 birds, is that covey going to be pretty vulnerable going into next year? Or do they, do they replenish pretty quickly because of their R strategist uh, method of populating? Well, you know, they do covey in the winter to conserve heat because they are a small bird. And so <clears throat> what the research has shown is, you know, you get down below, oh, eight to 10 birds a covey, they'll probably try to start looking to, you know, covey up with another covey so they can mm. get, you know, keep that. That seems to be the kind of threshold. We don't see coveys generally much smaller than about eight in the wintertime. And so... You know, of course, occasionally they'll see coveys up to 20, 25. And so <clears throat> big range of what they can do. You know, normal is probably 12 to 15. And so kind of gets into the old hunting adage. You know, the guys, when they were avid quail hunters, we had a lot of them, you know, that, you know, you generally didn't want to shoot a covey down below 10 or 8. Um, but, you know, we always know that there's probably other coveys in the landscape. So even if you would accidentally sure. shoot one down. You know, they'll they'll join up with that other covey and, you know, kind of bring their covey size back up so they get sure good heat and stuff, especially in our, our colder winters. So, but, you know, generally we do the math on the species, you know, we look at their survival weights. We know that the reproductive potential is, you know, generally we say that we can shoot, you know, 20 to maybe 30 percent of the fall population and we're not going to impact next year's population in most years you know, obviously you have those sure freak winters and stuff but um so that's almost so like that's a, definitely a rule of thumb yeah that'd be a good statistic to keep in mind if you if you did have a covey on your property that 20 to 30 percent number yeah that's that's i like that uh here's another question i i thought in this and uh, within this covey structure idea and you kind of already are answering it for me because you talk about how they're they're migrating a little bit and that's something else i want to come back to as well but um do especially in a state like iowa where we have limited numbers are there any gene pool issues for quail based on their coveying nature you know so let's say you got you know a healthy covey of like maybe 20 20 birds on a farm is most of the breeding only going to take place within that covey or do, do uh, birds seek out, you know, during the breeding season, do, do they travel, you know, do they range out a greater distance to, uh, to find other coveys for, for breeding? You know, we did some, the last research project we did on Bob White quail here was in the, uh, <clears throat> Oh, late 90s, we did some research down around Lake Sejima there and <clears throat> over towards Centerville, Kiyosakwa, and, you know, we had radios on birds there. And hmm. Some of the larger movements we saw were five to seven miles on a few individuals, which oh, wow. blew my mind, you know, thinking about quail and their tip, you know, if you yeah. have a really good habitat, you should be able to keep a covey on 40 acres, you know, so, you know, it kind of lends itself to you know, a covey per 80, you just don't think of them traveling that far, but um, <clears throat> they can, and they're capable of it. And, uh, you know, we had birds that just disappeared on us that we thought died, even sent an airplane up looking, trying to find the radio, rather than just trying to find it from the road in a vehicle, and, uh, you know, couldn't find it, thought it was dead. Three months later, here it shows back up right where we, you know, originally tagged it. It's like, where the heck did that go? Yeah, right. You know, we couldn't track it. And so, you know, they, they definitely, 
you know, can cover some ground when they need to. That's what I said, uh, you know, they'll pioneer to new habitats pretty quickly. You know, I think majority of the time they spend their, you know, their entire lives, maybe in a quarter or half section, but um, there's a lot of shuffling in the fall. So, you know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, the hen raises a brood and then you go right into the fall and you've got the winter covey and it's probably Ooh. that brood. But what we found from telemetry is a lot of those young birds just take off. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden they hook up with some other bird somewhere else and covey up with them. And so um, they're really good about making sure that they're not inbreeding and, and spreading their genes around. And, you know, we have quail all across the southern every county we still have quail so you know from a genetic standpoint we're not we're not worried you know about that with our population that's for sure 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 well that's that's good to hear that's something i've always wondered about and that's cool that they do uh have that ranging instinct that uh kind of go on those little excursions during uh those uh times of year that's 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 fascinating seven miles is a long way for a little bird but i i suppose some of their uh cousins that fly way down uh to south america in the, the winter time would uh laugh at that but but uh that's uh that's pretty cool um you know a thing that i saw uh recently was a guy uh posted on social media this it was fascinating to me he uh, posted a picture of, and he explained it as best as he understood stood what was going on, <clears throat> but he was hunting some public ground. I can't remember if he said what state it was. I believe it was kind of southwest area. And he showed this picture of all these little quail hotels that he called, is what he called them. And he said that, uh, I don't know if it was county ground or if it was state ground, biologists whoever were in charge of this ground had set up these hotels, right? And uh, they basically looked like something that uh, the three little pigs would have thrown up to hide from the big bad wolf. <laughs> these little uh, little stick teepees or something. And uh, they're just like little huts all over, kind of almost like a little, uh, what do they call them? Little, they call them farrowing sheds. Is that what they used to call them when you'd uh, turn your hogs out into the, the back 40 or something like that. But uh, they were, I mean, just kind of dotted the area there. It was probably in just this one picture, I don't know, at least 10. And uh, he said that they were there to help, you know, keep the quail around there. There was the structure they needed. And to me, uh, that seemed strange because I mean, a coyote's a lot smarter than I am. And, uh, if I saw, if I knew that birds were hanging out in, in these little huts, that'd be pretty easy pickings. Have you heard of anything like that for, for keeping quail around or, or helping them out? Yeah. I mean, it was probably about a decade ago. There was a company that came out with something called the surrogator and it was a <clears throat> little self-contained unit that you could put out in the out of doors and it kind of had a built-in heat lamp and maybe a feeder and a waterer in it. And so the idea was you'd get pen and quail, you'd raise them to about eight weeks of age. So they were maybe two thirds to three quarters grown. And, you know, one of the complaints about the pen raised birds is because they're in a pen, they just, they don't understand the water. They don't understand what to eat. They don't understand predators. They've mm. you know, never had anything, any parents teach them anything about that. And so, 
this was supposed to be like a soft release into the wild and that they would theoretically, you know, learn this. So you'd open the doors on it, put it out there for a couple of days, open the doors. They could come and go and just slowly acclimate to, you know, wild living, so to sure. speak. Um, yeah, I think they pretty much proven they really don't work at all. But, um, you know, if you're a private shooting preserve, um, they evaluated them. I remember a study out of Georgia that, uh, you know, this this operation probably planted 2,000 penrood quail a year for its its hunters. And, you know, of course, the challenge with pen-raised birds is they don't quite fly as good as wild quail and they don't hide as well. And so he wanted to go the surrogate route to maybe – have a little bit wider, wilder quail for the clients. And <clears throat> so he, he split his plantation in half, a thousand acres to the surrogators, a thousand to just normal pen raised. And halfway through the season, he just flat out right quit the surrogators because his clients over there weren't finding any quail at all. And he really? just started putting pen raised birds out because, yeah, I mean, that's what kind of research has, has shown on him is that they really don't have any better survival than if you just dump and raise birds out. So sure. uh, they kind of, I haven't heard much about them in the last four or five years. I think they've, you know, kind of run their course. People have, have figured it out that, you know, they, they don't work. Sure. I mean, if they work that well, we'd probably have a bunch of them. But. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So, so quail hotels, probably uh same, same, uh, regard as the uh, surrogator uh, yeah it just seems and i've i've even heard that from a standpoint of like folks wanting to you know i'm going to put out a new strip of crp grasses and i'm going to plant it in this big uh rectangle rectangular strip for uh pheasants and, and quail and then uh or even deer you know and uh for good like uh fawning uh, areas or something but uh, predators figure that out pretty good. They treat those kind of as like a uh, uh, buffet line. You know, they're able to just kind of run that drag strip there, and and uh, it doesn't give them uh, enough of a challenge for finding things. You know, it's almost like a, a combine moving through a cornfield. You know, just uh, if you stay in that straight line, you're bound to your nose is bound to run into something. And so uh, I got to think that the same rule would kind of apply to to something like that. You know, those, uh, just like animals on a feeder, you know, they they kind of figure out where, where the easy food is. And and uh, I'm glad you brought that up, though, too, about the pen release spurs, because that was going to be another one of my questions. And while we're on it, is the same rule generally apply with pheasants? Um, I had a friend of mine just uh, reach out to me uh, last night that he was thinking about purchasing some pen raised pheasants to turn loose on some of his his hunting ground do they, they kind of face the same exact challenges as pen pen raised quail oh yeah i mean most of the research on pen raised birds i mean has shown that <clears throat> generally most of your pen raised birds are dead within a month mm. i mean they just lack the skills and the you know tools necessary to survive in a wild situation um so yeah i i remember doing a pheasants forever state meeting well probably 10 15 years ago now and uh, a gentleman bought a semi trailer an old used one and put some heat in it went and bought a thousand pheasants and uh wow 
kind of made it a giant surrogator in southern Iowa, and, and uh, he's he's telling a group of people, kind of chatting after I'd done a presentation about this, and I don't know if he knew I was there because, you know, at that time, releasing pheasants in the wild wasn't even legal, but um, to his <laughs> credit, he went and bought a bunch of black color phase pheasants Okay. because he wanted to evaluate what he was doing. Yeah, and I, I thought that was pretty unique, even though it was illegal what he was doing. But you know, he's and uh, you know everybody's like, "Well, how'd it work?" And he's like, "Well, I only let nine hundred go. I kept a hundred back just to train the dog and do some practice shooting." And he's like, "That was the biggest dang coyote feeder. I, I would never waste my money. I didn't see like two black pheasants the entire season." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yep, yep. That that uh that that is a good example there for for I what said, to you expect. You should have been out there talking about stocking, not me. <laughs> right, right. Now, um, do uh, it has that law changed? Can people can people legally do that now and and uh, cut pheasants loose? Yeah. So the one species that people can do is pheasants. That's the only species. Okay. And they can release them on on land that they own or lease you can't just let them go anywhere it's got to sure. be on land you own or lease that's yeah that's interesting and uh, i imagine um stories like his are what uh keep keep uh you upland biologists from getting too nervous about it because uh <laughs> can't be too much uh too much uh avian disease that it's going to spread to the pheasant I guess you call it the pheasant flock here in Iowa because they're not alive long enough to do so. <laughs> coyotes get kind of fat and slow, so maybe coyote hunters like it. But, but uh, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, it's good. It's good to know that and how timely. I'll be sure to pass it on to my friend. Like, hey, I talked to the guy who knows. Doesn't save your save your dollars for some shells. Those are getting harder to come by than pheasants. So. Uh, <laughs> Yep, I mean, I think we've learned enough about, you know, and I mean, if you look at our department, we're not opposed to things like that. I mean, look at what we do with hatcheries and fish and sure. I mean, where the science has proven that it works and they have good survival and we can release them and do it. We do it. But where the science shows it doesn't work, we're not going to waste our money there. You know, there's a reason that put and take hunting operations aren't covered up with pheasants because, I mean, granted, they do shoot a lot of them, but they don't shoot them all. But they're right. never covered up with pheasants either. I mean, they just they don't survive that well. So, I mean, pen-raised birds work really good for put and take type hunting. Um, you know, if you wanted to take youth out and, you know, get them hooked on the sport without you know, maybe hunting for two hours and missing a bird, you know, wild birds, I mean, it's tougher. So, you know, that's where I think then where birds have a role where you can, you know, kind of <clears throat> keep it very controlled, give them success right away, you know, get them hooked in the, in the sport and the outdoors and enjoying it. And, uh, you know, they graduate on to chasing the real critter and the, you know, the challenges that wild critters always provide. I mean, that. Oh yeah. I mean, let's face it. That's why you and I like to do. I mean, if it was easy peasy, we'd probably do something else. Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. Makes it great. Yep. The challenge is what makes it the most fun for sure. Well, before we uh, close out on quail biology and then hit our last uh, quick topic here, which is just uh, some general hunting tips that you might have as a biologist, but also a upland hunter yourself. Um, 
from a dietary standpoint, you know, when you when I when you clean a pheasant here in Iowa, I mean, you're almost guaranteed to find a crop just full of uh, number two corn, <laughs> and, and uh, you, they like to eat corn just like our whitetails do, and uh, just like our raccoons do. The pheasants love eating corn. Are quail the same way, or are they? Are they, I mean, obviously this, this would change going into this time of year, but through much of the year, are they much more preferential uh, or more partial to, I guess I should say, uh, insects over grain, or are they just as big a corn eaters as, as uh, pheasants are? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the gallinaceous birds, turkey, pheasant, quail, Hungarians, you know, rough grouse, any of the gallinaceous birds. I mean, they definitely in the summertime shift to kind of more green matter, kind of more invertebrates, hmm. readily abundant. You know, your weed seed and your corn seed are kind of low at that time of year. But generally all of them, you see a shift kind of away from that as that diminishes into, you know, kind of more of our agricultural crops. Okay. I will say with um, like Bob Whites, there's probably – a little bit more focus on some of the weed seeds, whether it's pigweed or foxtail or giant mm. ragweed, common ragweed. I mean, actually, giant ragweed's probably the most energy efficient, energy dense weed seeds we have out there. You know, annual sunflower would be another one that's really high energy for, you know, things like quail and stuff. But actually, giant ragweed, I think, compares right up there with corn for energy content. Oh, wow. So, Wow. But, you know, a lot of our songbirds hone on them. You know, of course, all the songbirds migrate through Iowa going south. So a lot of that weed seed is pretty ravaged over, you know, in the fall and early winter. And so, you know, I think by the time we get to this time of year, you know, even quail are probably they're taking weed seed whenever they can get it. But I mean, obviously, if there's a food plot or some kind of agricultural waste or picking through manure that's got corn or oats or something mm. in it, I mean, they're, you know, they're still looking for that high energy food wherever they can find it. Huh. That is, that is really interesting to, to hear that. You know, it just seems like a, a kernel of corn has got to look like a 64 ounce steak to a, to a quail and more like a uh, chicken nugget to a uh, pheasant. But, but uh, that's, that's good to know that they, they both uh, view that as some fine, some fine dining here in Iowa. But uh, the, the last thing I want to ask you here from a biologist standpoint, as far as quail go, what do you perceive now is the biggest threat to quail? You know, what, what if, if quail are ever going to end up like jackrabbits, we'll say, in Iowa, where, yeah, they're still hanging on, but, but uh, you know, certainly all seasons are closed. What's going to put them into that, that circumstance, do you think? I think, you know, just agricultural intensification in general, you know, just, you know, we're pretty reliant on chemicals and, you know, just the thought of any weed showing up in my field, you know, it has mm. to be spread, it has to be clean and quail are so tied with weeds and then they like that shrubby component. But, you know, when you talk farmers today, big equipment. You know, let's get rid of that shrubby fence line. Let's get rid of that draw. I don't need to be hitting my boom on it. Don't mean to mm. tear up this equipment. And so, and then probably the other thing is just consolidation in livestock. You know, I think we're lucky in the quail range in southern Iowa that we still do have 
kind of what I call more family farms where it's, you know, a family operation. They have some cattle, so they still do have the pasture and that component. They keep those shrubby fence rows and draws are still there. They're still doing some agriculture, but we haven't consolidated all those cattle into, you know, the giant feedlots that we see in Nebraska or out in Western Iowa. Um, sure. Sort of there now, you know, so I think as long as we keep that in southern Iowa, we'll keep quail there. Um <clears throat> You know, but it's it's basically, you know, there's always more and more people and we're always trying to get more efficiency and for yep. things like quail and pheasant that usually doesn't spell good things on the landscape. But um, I don't want to be all doom and gloom because, you know, there's there's talk about things like producing fuel from like switchgrass or mixed natives, you know, and so mm -hmm. something like that would take off as a crop in Iowa. I'm always encouraged by seeing the use of cover crops, um, you know, to address some of our nitrogen issues and some of our yeah. water quality, you know, putting actually a, a green grassy cover out there on a lot of that plowed ground in the wintertime. Um, Iowa State just actually did a study looking at quail use of cover crops in uh, Washington County. Um, they kind of looked at more of the nesting side of it and stuff. Um, they basically get terminated too soon for quail to really nest sure. in them much, but um, they did see them using them in the fall, and so okay. you know, the birds can be out there foraging in it. At least that's something. You know, I'd like to see more nesting habitat, more broodering habitat, because that's kind of what's really limiting our population. But um, you know, I don't think things like cover crops are. They're certainly not detrimental to them. You know, I'm not going to tell you they're going to double our population either because i don't i don't think they will they're not providing additional nesting cover which is unfortunate but you know if there's some tweaks to cover crops and and we do like leave the field actually fallow for the summer hmm. you know and not disturb it i think you know we would see pheasant and quail use but you know for most of our cropping now the cover crops are there they're there till about April, mid, you know, early May. They terminate them so they can go in there and plant the soybeans. Well, that's just right when pheasants and quail are getting ready to nest. And here you come. Right. And I mean, it just, the time just doesn't work. So, yeah, that was, that was, uh, the fear that, you know, my friend who, who, uh, uh, was t talking to me about that had, he, he said when he'd be running his, you know, his uh, drill in the spring, you know, he'd just see critters running left and right out of that, out of all the, you know, cover that was down on the ground already. And, and uh, yeah, from a timing standpoint, uh, makes a lot of sense. Not, not good for, not good for uh, upland birds to be using it at that point. So, yeah, well, you know, I, I agree. It's not all doom and gloom. There's, I think there's certainly things that people are, you know, it starts with awareness, right? People become more aware of, I think um, we're starting to see more prairie plots coming back, you know, uh, either done through maybe a Pheasants Forever initiative or their guidance or whatever, uh, to just people putting them in their yards, you know, um, uh, you and I have talked about this before. I actually need to talk to you a little bit more about this. Um, my wife and I were planning to do a nice big prairie plot out here on our farm. And, uh, you know, I think some of those things coming back around, uh, will provide some, you know, some 
areas of sanctuary, if nothing else, for at least part of the year for some of these uh, some of these critters. And like we talked about earlier, they're just good at surviving, right? That's that's one thing pretty well in common of most wild critters. They they're just good at sticking around. They find a way. They they adapt. And uh, they've been doing so since uh, the horse was pulling the plow, and now as uh, the, the tractor pulls the drill, and because you know we're in no-till now, which I think we found is actually better for the soil anyway. So, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, they, they do good at rolling with the punches. So, well, before we close this one out, Todd, we need your uh, we, we need we need like a hunt hunt with a biologist. Uh, <laughs> point of view here, some hunting tips. If someone is wanting to cash in on these last, well, I guess now it's 12 days because uh, we're past uh, 4.30 p.m. So we're beyond legal hunting hours today. So starting tomorrow, you got 12 days to hunt quail um, left here in Iowa. Do you got any, like, general tips for uh, where where you would prioritize if you were getting out there looking for quail right now? I mean, yeah, first thing is looking for that shrubby cover and, and, uh, you know, I'm talking about stuff that basically you almost have to get on your hands and knees to get through. I mean, Mm. that's real key for them. And if that's near to some kind of food source, like, I mean, not 10 person steps, 10 quail steps from a good food source. Oh, wow. Odds are you're going to have a cubby in that area, you know, and obviously, um, it's not the same cover as pheasants. I mean, you're not going to be looking for big blue stem and switchgrass as tall as your head. That's mm-hmm. that's not what they're looking for. They're looking more for like a good thick patch of ragweed, you know, common or giant, um, you know, heavy foxtail, you know, weedy spot washed out, you know, that's next to a food plot next to shrubby cover. I mean, those are the things to me that you know, you're going to find quail in spots like that. That's especially with the weather that we're currently having. So yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. It's good to, good to know where to zero in on that. And, um, actually last year I shot my first ever quail and it was after we had done that interview. And I think you had talked about a study that was done to see how far quail range from that woody cover. And, um, I want to say, if I remember correctly, was it 30 yards that it's like, you do not find quail outside of that 30 yard range from that woody shrubby vegetation that you were just describing. Is that, is that what that revealed that study? Yep. 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 About a hundred feet was what they found 70 to hundred feet in the winter time. Now, obviously spring, summer, fall, they'll get much farther away from shrubby cover Oh, but okay. in the winter time, you know, these winter months we have snow on the ground. That's yeah. I mean, there's always exceptions to every rule, but, you know, with our telemetry projects and stuff, you know, 90% of our locations are usually within, if they're not in shrubby cover, they're within, you know, 70 to 100 feet of it. So, yeah, roughly 30 yards. So that's what I was saying. You know, if you want to create a farm that can support a covey of quail all winter, just think about that. I mean, that means... 100 feet from this shrubby cover you go 100 feet in the other way and you need shrubby cover again mm-hmm. seeing that side of the field so your yeah. field can only be 200 feet wide technically yeah yeah you that's know, true. how many fields in iowa are only 200 feet wide <laughs> <laughs> you're right combines are almost that wide now it seems <laughs> yeah so but, well, i mean you get in southern iowa where we have the ravine country and that's not unusual 
Yeah. You know, it had a couple draws coming down and, you know, so probably not a surprise that our best quail country is, you know, down in that part of the state where we still do have that kind of interspersion of the woody cover with, you know, cropping and pasture. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, kind of building off of that here too, if someone's wanting to increase that, that presence of the, the presence of quail on their hunting property, I, I assume that's really where you're going to start is trying to get that shrubby cover going and, uh, and then really focusing on those weed species and maybe taking in some of that, what we talked about with uh, the raptors, you know, making sure you're not, you don't have those giant perches that are sitting right over that while you're trying to get it started. But is, is that really what you would be doing? Kind of, would those be your ingredients there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of our private land staff came out or one of our partner agencies like Pheasants Forever or their staff. I mean, that's generally the recommendations that, you know, let's take a look at your farm. Let's see where your shrubby cover is. You know, you got an area of the farm that doesn't have that much. Well, if you want quail to be there in the winter, then, you know, you either need to plant that. Um, We can make shrubby cover quickly by dropping a big tree and just leaving it. You know, typically what we do is spray underneath it to kill all the grass before you drop it. And then you get kind of a weed flush coming through it. Okay. Hinge cut the tree and so not cut it off completely. So the tree still gets some sap and stuff for a year or two. You might get it to sucker up a little bit. And so, I mean, that's kind of creating ideal, you know, shrubby cover for quail instantly. You know, it's where, you know, if you went and planted shrubs, that'll work too, but you know, usually they're this high when you get them from the nursery. <laughs> so you're probably looking at five years before they fill in enough to, you know, start sure. s- supplying a structure that you want the quail to use. Whereas a hinge cut, you know, you can create it almost instantly if you have that opportunity. So, yeah, those are the kinds of things, you know, strategically doing a food plot. I mean, the birds do need some kind of mixed native grasses. It's not as heavy as what we plant for pheasants, but a a good diverse, you know, native mix with forbs or pollinator mix is great brood-rearing cover, great nesting cover, you know, but we still want to think about that severe winter cover because let's face it, we're on the northern fringe of the range and yeah. that really is the grim reaper for us. I mean, our droughts are not so bad here that we lose them and, you know, we can occasionally have some flash floods that wipe out nests, but probably for us, you know, the winters are the are the biggest killer for us. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and and uh, yeah, think all things to to keep in mind there. And uh, uh, I guess I have one final question here. This is one that you see circulating on. It's a debate on social media pages. You probably know where I'm going here. Uh, it's almost as hot as uh, the pen released bird discussion, and that is feeding upland birds through the winter, going out and and dumping corn or or whatever for uh you know guys will go out i know and and kind of dump it out along the edge of their crp strip and and things like that is that a a good practice to do todd or is that uh setting your birds up for uh easy pickings from uh raptors and coyotes and bobcats and whatever else yeah i mean generally we're not you know, in favor of it, because it, it really by that point, it's probably too late. I mean, very seldom do we have pheasants and quail starving to death. Um, mm. You know, they're usually dying because of exposure or they're being out in the oh, open. Okay, sure. 
you know, a lot of times we see people do that. They just dump it along the road or, you know, we get this kind of snow. It's hard to get to where you need to. So they dump it someplace convenient, which isn't probably really where they're wintering. So you're forcing them to expose themselves more than they would have normally. And generally that's not a good thing, especially when we have tougher winters. Um, you know, there's a lot of concern with CWD now and some of our deer diseases mm-hmm. that, you're congregating them and those diseases are spread by close individual contact. And that's exactly what you're encouraging. So, yep. Yep. you know, rather, rather have food plots or natural food that, you know, keeps the critters in cover, doesn't expose them, you know, doesn't, doesn't create that congregation effect that just dumping, you know, a pile of grain or spreading it along a road, um, <clears throat> you know, does, especially along the road, you know, you bring the birds to there, then you just expose them to vehicle collisions, which mm-hmm. probably they wouldn't have been. And Right. No, so, that's, that's I mean, a... people do it. Um, you know, there's nothing we can do to stop it, but certainly, you know, I think our recommendation to most people is, you know, come talk to us. Let's talk about what we can do for next year to make it a lot better than this. You know, right, right. Food plots and habitat. That's good to know. It's good to, good to have answers to that. Um, so my final, final question here is, if you were ruler of the world and uh, you got to make one decision to improve uh, quail presence in Iowa, what would that one tweak or adjustment be that you think, uh, you know, if everyone got on board with, if we could make this change, how could we... Uh, boost and and support our quail understanding once again that we're at the the northern fringe of the range but but um what what would you do to make life better for quail here in iowa well i'm certain my ag friends wouldn't like it but i would say if we could ban chemicals and go back to cultivation so we had weeds in fields again that would be Number one, but you know, <laughs> we know that probably isn't going to happen. So, right. You know, if we could, if we could get some kind of small grain crop back into Iowa's rotation, I think that would, mm. you know, bring some improvements in our modern landscape that we're we're seeing. You know, because, you know, we used to shoot a million quail a year in the 1960s, but wow, that was before soybeans were a crop. I mean, Iowa's crop rotation was. Corn, oats, hay, corn, mm. smoking, hay, you know, and and obviously we didn't have the chemicals back then that we have today. Right. So that, you know, added to it. But, you know, I think that small grain agriculture definitely lended itself to quail. You know, you think about oats, you think about wheat and, you know, they get this tall, but they were planted this far apart. So great overhead cover, open it, bare ground, just absolutely what quail love. Um, you know, corn and beans do that, but they're much taller and obviously everything's weed free today and, and, uh, small grains are actually a good food source for, for bobwhite too. And you put that hay rotation in with it and then going back to corn, you know, I think it just, you know, made some nesting cover it had an ideal brood rearing cover and winter cover. And, you know, the stubble was usually there. We didn't have as much tillage then. So mm. Just subtle little tweaks like that, you know, if we could get some kind of small grain agriculture that was profitable back in Iowa, I think, you know, now I'm kind of talking about, you know, what, what could we fit in today? Right, right. Yep. You know, if there ever became some kind of valuable, you know, that could compete with corn and beans, that might be, 
you know, the cats meow for quail in, in some of Southern Iowa, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, we're always innovating in this country. So who knows what 10 years from now will bring. So, yeah, I like that. And that's, that's great thoughts to have there. And, you know, if you're listening in, maybe you're not even from Iowa, but maybe you are living around quail, you know, take some of these things into consideration and, Maybe there's a, a corner on your property somewhere that you could make a little bit better for them or, or whatever. You, these are, these are some great suggestions. And I think, uh, I think quail are just one of the coolest critters we have, uh, to enjoy here in a landscape that is quite diverse still, even after, uh, the incredible, <laughs> the incredible, uh, I guess, change transformation that our landscape has had since settlement here in Iowa. We're probably the most modified landscape in the 50 states, but we still get to enjoy a rich abundance of, of not just a quantity of species, but quality of species here in Iowa. And a lot of that goes back to uh, Todd and the other biologists that work so hard for, for uh, you know, both the wildlife and those who enjoy it, uh, such as hunters. So Todd, thank you for that. And thank you so much for uh, coming on the show again and, uh, be, be sure that you keep an eye out for, um, the, the publications that come out from, uh, Todd every year. There's of course the roadside survey that comes out in, I believe it's August of every year, right? Is that right? August or maybe September. Yeah, we uh, we do the counts in August. Usually, I try to get them on the website in uh, in September. So yeah, folks can look for that there. And you know, some of our small game harvest reports and that information's all there too. And got a lot of other information there. You know, our private lands biologists, you know, habitat fact sheets, and so definitely that's why we put all that stuff out there, trying to you know let's get as much information as we can to hunters and landowners, and you know help them make good decisions. We got staff that are willing to come to the farm and walk through it with you, and great partners like Pheasants Forever and Ducks Unlimited, Turkey Federation, you know that have some staff that can do the same thing. So definitely good resources to tap into. Yeah, yeah, definitely look at look into all that if you do once again have that ability to uh customize the landscape a little bit. It's it's certainly worth it to try and uh, make it better for the critters that we love. Well, thank you so much, Todd. Make sure if you're uh um tuning into this, don't forget about our good buddy Brandon out in Delaware. Head over to The Hunt Fish Life. Follow up by going to the Facebook page that he has and the Instagram channel as well and uh interact with those guys post some stuff share your uh, grip and grins your funny hunting memes it's all fair game there on uh <laughs> on those pages and then don't forget about firstgenhunter.com uh you can find everything that i'm linked to there and uh get out enjoy these uh last 12 days now well by the time this thing uh publishes you know probably like down into the single digits but but uh (laughs) whatever days you got left enjoy them and do so by taking care and taking someone hunting